Good morning. The Lord has been faithful to bring us through another week and to give us strength to be here this morning, so we rejoice in his goodness to us and for the many answered prayers and the many acts of his providence that we are unaware of, but yet we know from Scripture are always happening around us. So we gather this morning not only to worship the things we know about God, but also the things we trust to be true about God from his word. And what a blessing that we can trust him and rely upon him and put our hope in him. It is indeed a great blessing. This morning, we are ending the book of Haggai by looking at the last two messages that God delivered to his people through this prophet. And if I'm honest, it feels like I'm doing something wrong having finished a book in only three weeks. This is wildly unpopular in my line of thinking. I'm just kidding. It's a short book, so we're spending a short time here. But it has been a blessing for me, and I pray for you as well, to see the consistency of God's dealing with his people. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit more when we get to the end of our time this morning about what we can glean from this book as a whole, but I'm just going to give you a little spoiler alert here that it has been such a blessing for my heart to be encouraged that so long ago, God's dealings with his people are the same because he is a covenant-keeping God. (laughs) He does not change in in those ways. And so I'm very thankful for that. We're going to see today in our text another reminder uh, from the Lord to his people, reminding them of why things have been a little bit screwy lately, why they've been difficult, and they've been struggling with their produce and their income and all these things. He's going to remind them that it is because at root they are sinners and in need of his grace and his salvation. And there's some interesting language that we're going to bump up. uh, Let me start that one over. There's some interesting language we're going to bump up against. uh, Carrying meat around in your shirt, for one. And uh, the, the corpse and the dead body. And what does this all have to do with us today? Uh, And it has massive relevance for us. And so I'm excited to get to this. I'm going to invite you to turn there right away to uh, Haggai chapter 2. And if you've been missing for a couple weeks, you can just go to Matthew in the New Testament and then go back three books and you will find the book of Haggai. This is towards the end of the New Testament. So if you would follow along, I'm going to read starting in verse 10 and we will read through the end of the chapter. Haggai 2, starting in verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these things, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10 When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. 
I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider, from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of kingdoms and nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horse and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother." On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, the purpose that you have laid out in your word is that you would receive praise from the nations and worship from all peoples. And I pray, Lord, that as a church, we would recognize our place in that desire of yours, that the gospel did not stay localized to ethnic Israel, but through the apostles It has spread throughout the world to all peoples and nations, at least many of them, to the effect that in 1992 the gospel was preached at the CMA church and I heard and you stirred in my heart and you saved me. So Lord, what we are doing here this morning is not inconsequential, but is of massive significance in the fulfillment of your promise to see the word of God preached among all the nations and to see many sons and daughters brought to you in salvation in Jesus Christ through the preaching of your word. So God, we praise you as a church that we do not belong to some isolated, localized, tribal God, but you are a God of the world and of the universe. And this morning, as we look at your dealings with your people so long ago, I pray that you would enliven our hearts and raise our affections for you, knowing that because you are a God of covenant faithfulness, we can trust every word that you have said every word. So God, I pray for grace in the preaching. I pray for grace in the hearing. I pray that this whole morning would be marked by your goodness and your faithfulness and that we would hear and obey your voice. So Father, come. Enliven our hearts and open our eyes so that we can see you and trust you more. And it's for your glory and in the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen.
Amen. If you remember now from a couple weeks back, we took some time and talked about the significance of the calendar dates, the time stamps that are on these four different messages that Haggai is bringing to the people. And we talked about the significance of those connections with some agricultural things or cultural things that were going on uh, at the time. And today, there's also significance to this time stamp that is given in what he says is the 24th day of the ninth month. This would be late in December in the calendar year as we know it and would have been kind of into the first of the winter harvests. So as he's talking about, you know, you haven't quite got what you thought you would in your crops, it's because they would have just finished that first time of harvest and seen a deficit there. And also there's another unique characteristic that there are two messages from the Lord on the same day. This is very unusual. I mean, think about the history of Israel. There has been times where it has been years, decades, hundreds of years sometimes of a void in hearing from the Lord, and yet here, twice in one day he speaks. And we ought to pay close attention to what is being said. These previous two messages were corporate in their nature, if you look back to chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, <clears throat> we see that it was to Zerubbabel, the governor, the kind of representative king, to Joshua, the priest, and also to all the people. So these were <clears throat> kind of collective messages. Now the two that we're going to see today are more focused, right? They are to the priests, that's a, that's a limited group, and also to Zerubbabel individually, and we'll see the significance of those things as we go on. And God is taking on a more conversational approach. The other messages were just, here's what it is. And now he has uh, Haggai ask questions and gain response. Which is just, I'm just pointing out some of the unique characteristics of these messages as we look at them. So the truth that God is trying to lead his people to discover is that they are not nearly as holy or clean as they thought they were. He's asking questions and prompting a response so that the people come to the conclusion, okay, maybe we're not quite as put together as we thought we were. So God uses this conversational style. Look at verses 11 to 13 again. <clears throat> What's going on in this section of verses? We have to admit it's a little bit strange, right? The language, the verbiage, we don't relate to this perhaps as easily as other places in the Bible. <clears throat> so what is the meaning of this strange language about dead bodies and stew and wine and carrying meat in your shirt? I thought I was the only one who did that. <clears throat> Apparently not. That's been going on for a long time. But, you know, a beef stick comes in handy every now and then. But what's going on? What is going on with this language here in 11 to 13? Here's the main point, I think, is what's happening. In this section... God wants these people to understand that holiness does not transfer, but unholiness does. Holiness does not transfer. You can't bump up against holiness and become holy. But uncleanliness, uncleanness, unholiness is transferable. This comparison to a dead body, to a corpse, 
has two main things that we should see, two central truths. First, the people's sin had caused them to become spiritually dead. They were defiled. Okay, remember, we've said this a lot, that all of the physical pictures that we see in the Bible, many of them are meant to communicate a spiritual reality. So God is taking from the Levitical code the law that was given to Moses for the people about contact with unclean things, and he is using this as an illustration of what has happened in the life of the people. That's the meaning of the corpse. It is death. Second, because they are dead and defiled, no amount of work that they do, no amount of self cleansing or self-atonement will make them right with God or will make their works profitable until they repent and turn back to God. This is not the only time in redemptive history that we see this language of defilement and of a church thinking that they are clean and right and yet they are actually not. If we fast forward about 620 some years We get to the book of Revelation, and we see the letters to the churches. Remember this? At the beginning of Revelation, we have the letters to the seven churches. To the church at Sardis, this is what's spoken. Listen, this is Revelation 3, and I want you to listen for some similar language. Defilement, pay attention, watch what you're doing. Listen to this, okay? This is Revelation 3, starting in verse 1, to the church at Sardis. Christ says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people that have not soiled their garments. There's the defilement language. Do you hear the similarities between that and what's going on back in Haggai chapter 2? The church at Sardis was defiled. They thought they were alive, but they were dead. Their their sin had affected all of the works of their hands. Same thing going on here in Haggai chapter 2. That's what's being illustrated in these verses 11 to 13. God is using language, this Levitical language that would have been very familiar to the people, at least more familiar than it probably is to us, to illustrate the point that their works were not pleasing to him. And the reason for that was that because the uncleanliness of their heart, the sin that has indwelt them and affected them, has spread not only to them but to the works of their hands. Everything they touch. That's that's what's being communicated by that. If this touches this, it becomes unclean. Therefore, the things that the people touch in a sense, what they do with their hands, these works are not pleasing to God because they likewise are tainted by sin. If someone was unclean, in this case, if the illustration of touching a dead body, and they touched something else, that also became unclean. We understand this, right? We have a category for this. Let's say you're uh, going over to a friend's house, and you get there and they say, oh, hey, just to let you know, I have strep throat. First, you're like, well, thanks a lot. <clears throat> but you, you distance yourself because you know you can catch that cold. You don't want to catch their sickness. You want to stay healthy, right? We don't hang around healthy people to catch their health. 
It doesn't work like that, does it? It'd be kind of nice if it did, (laughs) but that's not what happens. We transmit uncleanliness, even in in a strictly physical sense, right? Disease spreads. Health is not like that. This is what's being communicated here in Hagar, that the people, and not just the people, but the works of their hands had become defiled because of the sin that is at root in their hearts. So after speaking about this defilement that is in the people, listen to what he says, and this is communicating that it's not just the people, it's not just a thing that they have to deal with internally, but it's everything they've touched. Verse 14 of Haggai 2 Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with the nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. Now you may wonder at this point, which I did this week, why does God continue to bring up their failings and their sin and their shortcomings? Why does he continually bring their sin to the the fore, to the front of their, why does he remind them over and over? I mean, isn't God a God who forgives sin and forgets about it? Don't we read in Psalm 103 that he will not deal with us according to our sin or punish us according to our iniquity, that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so far has he removed our sin from us. So what is going on with this continual reminder, you've been sinful, you've been sinful, you've been sinful, and that is why things are going the way that they are. It's because... When God reveals our sinfulness to us, to these people, when we understand the depth of our sin and our depravity and our inability to cure our own sin, then the grace and forgiveness and mercy of God become that much sweeter. And God is not being some manipulative, mean person by drudging stuff up from the past and things they've already moved on from and rubbing their face in it. He is dealing with right in front of them. This is what's going on. It's a contrast between sin and grace. Several years ago, something bad, not good happened to me, I don't talk about this a lot, but it lasted almost a month. Um, it was called the Whole 30. And in the Whole 30, what happens is you can't eat any sugar, right? That's the whole point. Nothing processed, nothing with added sugar to it. And your body becomes used to this bland, kale kind of lifestyle. I'm sorry if anyone likes kale. And I remember so clearly that at the end of that 30 days, I had a bowl of plain yogurt with pineapple in it. And that pineapple was about the sweetest thing that I had tasted, I thought, in my life. Because by contrast to what I had been eating for the past 30 days, that was like, oh, give me some more pineapple. When we understand our sin And yes, I am comparing sin to kale here. When we understand our sin and the dryness 
and the blandness and the blah of it, then we want the redemption of pineapple. Do you get what I'm saying here? When God draws attention to our sin, which is what he is doing in Haggai chapter 2, when he says, this is the reason why you have not had success because you have turned from me and have not come back to me, then when he offers redemption and hope and mercy and promise, they say, yes! It's a means of grace to have our sin exposed. And here's where I just... It was very convicting to me this week. Because if I'm honest, I do not rejoice in the exposure of my sin. Do you? No. When a brother or a sister comes to you and says, look, I love you, and I've noticed that there's some things in your life that are not squared with the word of God, what's going on? Is your reaction to say, praise God, for this means of grace. I can notice now, I can see more clearly what's going on and I can repent and draw near to God or is your response to bristle? Who are you to tell me that there's something wrong in my life? Why don't you look at your own life, sinner? It is a means of grace for God to expose our sin, not so that we just recognize it and stay there, but so that we can taste the sweetness of his forgiveness that is offered to us through Christ. And I just want to encourage us as a church. We need to do this. We need to do it in love and we need to do it carefully. But we need to be able to approach one another and to say, I love you. I want to help you. Here's what I'm seeing. Do you see that too? And when that happens, don't bristle. Don't immediately shut down. Reflect. Is it true? Is that what's going on? Use it as an opportunity to draw near to the Lord. I know that's not easy. I hate that (laughs) at first. But then we understand that this is the way that God has established things. Now as we move on, verses 15 through 19, three times we see the Lord call his people to consider, to remember, to think about what they are doing and why they are doing it. This has been a repeat theme of the book. If we look back to chapter 1, he called his people to consider their works, to consider what they were doing and to come back to him. And now three more times in chapter 2, we see the same thing happening. And he's telling them to consider their way as a means of finding out why things have been the way they are. And really, this section of the text shows us the sovereignty of God demonstrated by his control over natural and agricultural elements. Look again at verse 15 through 17. Now then, consider, from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, in other words, before the people had initially repented and carried on with the work, verse 16, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there was 10. When one came to get 50 measures of wine, there were but 20. I struck down all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Now the simplest and maybe the best definition of the sovereignty of God is that God Almighty has the power and the right to do everything that he pleases. 
You want to know what does it mean that God is sovereign? God has the power and the right to do everything he pleases. He controls the spiritual elements of the universe and he controls the natural elements of the universe. Hundreds of times in the Bible we see this happening. He commands the clouds and they bring rain or hail in this case. He directs the winds and they blow. He controls fungus and bacteria that form mildew and ruin the crops of his disobedient people. Do you have a category for a God like that? I hope you do because that's the God of the Bible. Through his prophet Haggai, God is telling the people why (laughs) the misfortune they have experienced is in no way random, okay? There's no way that they could look at all these things that had happened and gone, "Eh, must have been a bad year for the crops. No, there was evidence here that this was God acting in, get this, covenant faithfulness. When we read the terms of the covenant between God and his people going as far back as Moses, there are blessings for obedience to the covenant and there is cursing for disobedience to the covenant. This didn't come out of nowhere for God's people. This is how he has acted throughout all of their history. These natural and agricultural misfortunes that had come upon the people could not be explained by mere coincidence. God is not some kind of passive observer in the world, but he is active, working and doing. He tells the people he is the immediate cause of their misfortune. Look at verse 17. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Okay, Haggai is using this classic Covenantal language like we would see in Deuteronomy 28, promised blessing for obedience, promised cursing for disobedience. The severe agricultural failings that had been happening to the people of God were meant to get their attention and draw them back to the Lord. See, God never does things willy-nilly. He is not a God who says, oh, I could do that. I'm just going to try it out and see how they respond. He never does that. He is not maniacal. He is not petty. He does what he does for a purpose. And in his correction, his faithfulness to the covenant in bringing consequence for his people's disobedience, it is redemptive in its scope. He is drawing them back and saying, hey, wake up. Look at what's going on around you. I am the God who does these things, so pay attention and come back to me. But as of yet, the people hadn't caught on, had they? They had not responded the way they should have. Look at the end of verse 17. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. I mean, this situation is so familiar to us if we know the history of God's people from from Adam on, <laughs> that the people know what they ought to do and yet they reject the law of God and they go their own way. And the warnings that the Lord has given to his people in the form of these mishaps, these agricultural things, have been not heeded so far. They've fallen on deaf ears, as it were. Now God continues speaking in verse 18. 
Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. Think about this, he's saying. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. Because the people were defiled by sin. Okay, that's the first section. You remember that? The the dead body, the, the transfer of uncleanliness. Because they were defiled, the works of their hands were also defiled. That's what that whole first 11 to 13 section was telling us. And I think one of the problems with the people of God is that they had forgotten what to do and why to do it. Okay, all of this language in that text about the the pomegranate and the fig tree and the lack of those things, they've heard this all before. The prophet Habakkuk, which was before exile, he had a prayer that he led the people in for situations just like this when there seemed to be a problem with the income, a problem with the produce, a problem with their provision. And he led them in this prayer, only he gets it right He has the right response to a situation of lack. Listen to this. This is uh, Habakkuk chapter 3. You can turn back if you want or just listen. I'll start in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Okay, this is a similar situation to what we're seeing in Haggai chapter 2. What's the response of God's people? Verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Talk about a tale of two cities. Haggai is saying, things are bad, people of Israel, and you have forgotten what the prophets of old had told you. And not even that old. When things are bad, when produce is lacking, when there's no herds, the response of God's people ought to be, regardless, we will take delight in our God and have joy in the God of our salvation. Why? Because God is a God of covenant faithfulness, and he will not ultimately abandon his people. Therefore, yes, times are tough. Yes, it may even be a result of our own sin, yet God is faithful. Therefore, when there is no fruit on the vine or produce in the field, we will praise him. The people had forgotten that. They had forgotten that way of responding to the situations around them. Instead, they had turned to their own efforts, their own resources. They were doing all the things that they should do, but the the result was just off. It was missing. Yet once again, and this is this repeat theme of the book of Haggai, God reaffirms his covenant love for his people. Look at the 19th verse of the second chapter here. Haggai 2.19, but from this day on, I will bless you. (laughs) What a promise. And what a God. If I'm in that situation, or if you are in that situation, and you had the power to shape the next moments of this people's life, They've been disobedient. They've been whiners, complainers, malcontents. My response would be, nice to know you. Not God. He's going to bless his disobedient people. Who is this God? (laughs) 
Who does this? The sovereign God, the one who controls the natural elements, the one who has, by his own admission two verses earlier, brought the destruction and the difficulty to get their attention, also says, I'm going to bless you. I will not abandon the covenant that I made with you. Return to me, return to me, return to me. I will take you back. And he says the same thing to you and to me. You may not be worried about pomegranates, but you're worried about something. We all are. Now as we come to the end of the chapter, in verse 20 to 23, now we see Haggai's last message to the people. This is the fourth and final address of Haggai from God to the people of Israel. And this message, like I said, is narrowed in its scope because it goes only to Zerubbabel, who is the representative head at this point, the governing official of the people of God at this time. Now God has a message for this man to encourage him, to give him hope, and to reaffirm that God does indeed have the power to do what he has promised to do. God tells Zerubbabel that he is about to bring peace to the people and he'll do this by shaking the nations and overthrowing the governments around them, effectively taking care of all the people who could have been a threat to the nation of Israel. We saw the same language in chapter 1, if you remember this, where God promised to shake the nations, to stir things up so that the resources needed for the temple would come in. You remember that from the end of chapter 1. Now the main thing, I think one of the main things that stood out to me in this last message is that God does not say that Zerubbabel and the people are going to gain the victory over the enemies themselves. Rather, he says that God himself will fight on behalf of his people. He will shake the nations. Notice the language of destruction of the weapons of warfare that were yielded against them. Verse 22 specifically points out that God himself is the cause of this. Look at verse 22 of Haggai 2, right about in the middle. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms and the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. The horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. Not the sword of Zerubbabel, not the sword of the nation of Israel, the enemies are going to destroy themselves at the command of God Almighty. Now, if you don't know this about God, there's something really important to understand. That God delights in bad odds. Did you know this? If God works through his people in such a way that it is evident it was the strength of the person, they get the glory for that. God's jealous for his glory. He ain't going to let that happen. So God delights to work in situations where it is clearly obvious that he is the one who deserves the glory. Let me give you two examples. Think of Gideon. Remember Gideon in the era of the judges? And he, he puts this army together to fight against Midian. Gideon, Midian. We can make a song about that. Maybe we'll do that later. But what happens is that he starts out with 32,000 soldiers. And God says, nope, 
if this happens this way, I'm not going to get the glory. This huge army will get the glory. So God whittles that number down to 300. Less than one one-hundredth of the original force. And he defeats the enemy in a way that is so clear God gets the glory. There's this other instance in Second Chronicles chapter 20. Uh, and this just makes me chuckle. Um, maybe it shouldn't. God's people are on the brink of battle. They're, they're in some dire straits. And uh, they're, they're getting ready. They're sharpening their swords. They're preparing for this. And God says, you know what? You guys ready for your marching orders? I want you to sing. You just got to imagine the irony of this. You've got these burly, bearded Israelite warriors. They're sharpening their swords. They're filling their quivers. And all of a sudden, the general comes and says, open your hymnals to number 462. And they're going, what in the world is going on? I thought we were at war. Well, what's going on is God delights in bad odds. And so while these guys are singing to the Lord, God causes confusion in the enemy. And when Israel finally comes up to the battle, they are slain before them because God worked. This is what's being communicated to us in Haggai chapter 2. God is going to destroy the enemies of Israel. God is going to get credit for what happens. Israel won't defeat them. Zerubbabel won't defeat them. God will. He will bring the destruction and gain the victory so that his people live in peace and so that they know that he alone is God. Now the book ends with this hope-filled promise that God will take Zerubbabel. And I think we can say the people by extension. So here's, here's what I mean. Remember when we were going through the Psalms and we saw that the king... That the governing official is a representative of the whole. He is one part, but he represents the whole. As goes the king, so goes the nation. So when God says that he is going to take Zerubbabel and make him his signet ring, what does that mean? We don't use signet rings that much anymore. I wish we did. But this is a powerful reminder, I think, of God's deep love for his people and his leaders that he has put in place. And he entrusts Zerubbabel with his authority. That's the, that's the point of the ring. Now, a king would not give this ring to someone he didn't trust, to someone who was unable to do what he had done. He didn't take that ring off and say, okay, I know you've never done anything, but I'm gonna just entrust this to you. This is a sign of God's favor, of his approval, upon Zerubbabel, which I think is really important for us to understand. And notice this offer of authority to, to make him the signet ring, the symbol of God's pleasure and approval is a step beyond forgiveness. It is. It's more than just forgiveness. It's a declaration of the restoring the relationship I mean, it's one thing to be forgiven, it's one thing to be redeemed and to be blessed, but to be restored back into this relationship is something that God delights to do, and it is an evidence of his grace. Israel coming back after the exile was a nation in shambles, right? They, they had been gone 
50 or 70 years, I don't remember off the top of my head, they come back and the city's in ruins. They're trying to get their act together, trying to build it. And God takes this people and he says, you are mine, I have covenanted with you, I will provide for you, I will protect you, and more than that, I am entrusting you with my very authority to be my representatives to the nations around you. This is a demonstration of the grace of God. And I'm very thankful for this. Now, as we consider the book of Haggai as a whole, it's only been three weeks, so you should be able to remember back everything that we've talked about, and at least most things that we've talked about. What has been your takeaway? What have you learned looking at this book? And I'd love to hear that. We won't do that right now, but I'd love to hear what you have noticed or what you've been helped by because of God's word in this thing. And I think as I was thinking about this, my summary of the helpfulness of this book to me can be summed up in three words. And you could probably say them to me right now because I've said them so much this morning. The three words that summarize my thinking about this book is God's covenant faithfulness. God's covenant faithfulness. Now, it's not as if God doesn't care what we do, right? It's not as if we can just sin and fail and act however we want to be. Well, God's faithful. He's going he's to bring it back. That's not it. We, we deal with that other places in Scripture. But the fact that God does not leave his people, the fact that he will not abandon you, and more than that, that he will actually, in a positive sense, give you what you need to do whatever he's called you to do, is a tremendous strength and it is the thing that will keep you solid when everything else around you seems to be nuts so here's the application we'll close with this when you are tempted to question God's timing or question God's methods or question God's direction or question his ability. These are all things that I deal with in my own life at times. Remember the book of Haggai. And remember that the covenant-keeping faithfulness of God will never end. That's what will get you through. That's what will sustain you. And that's the message of the book of Haggai. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you and I praise you that you are a God who never fails, who never changes, who never decides you are tired of your people and you leave us, but you are a God who over and over and over again have demonstrated your covenant-keeping faithfulness. Father, as we are gathered in this room now as your people, I pray that you would strengthen our faith I pray that we would trust you more, that we would not immediately turn to our own resources, but that we would put our hope and our trust and our faith in you and the confidence that you are a God of faithful, covenant-keeping love. You've promised to care for us. You've promised to give us what we need. And so, Lord, give us all the strength to trust you more than we do. And even now, as we have the privilege of coming to your table, Make this a blessed reminder of your faithfulness. 
It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.